one of the most powerful verses in all the Scripture, I believe can be found in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, the Scripture reads, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We sing the song, and we will sing it following the lesson this morning, Faith is the Victory. When I hear this, to me, this is like a battle cry. Faith is the victory. It's a statement that can inflame our passions in order to fight the good fight, and yet at the same time will strike fear in the heart of our enemies and our enemy. This is something that we need to keep ever in our minds. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our I'd like for us to take a look at this verse and look at some lessons that are a little bit deeper, though, than just the surface. I want us to notice a couple of things about this verse and what it means. The very first thing that we recognize when we consider this verse is that we are in a battle. We are fighting a fight. We may not see it. We don't get to see pictures on the news of this fight. We may not see the casualties and the wounded and hear about it every day, but we are in a battle every day of our lives. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12, Paul said, fight the good fight of faith. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul said there, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Paul says we are in a battle. We are in a fight. And we must fight the good fight of faith. But we're talking about something even deeper than that. Look in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. In Luke chapter 10, and verse 17, keep in mind, Jesus has sent 70 disciples out on what we often refer to as the limited commission. He gave them great amounts of authority and they went through the land performing this work for Jesus. And in Luke chapter 10 and verse 17, the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. But notice what Jesus' interesting response is. He says in verse 18, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. What is Jesus indicating there? Jesus' point is that there is something that's going on behind all that we see. The disciples were performing work. They were doing what Jesus has commanded them to do. And Jesus pointed out that there is something taking place in the spiritual realm based on the work that the disciples were doing on the earth. There was a spiritual battle taking place. They weren't just going around teaching. They weren't just going around healing. They were fighting against Satan and they were defeating him. And Jesus indicated that by this statement. I saw him falling from heaven like light winning the battle. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 beginning at verse 3 describes our battle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 beginning at verse 3 Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. 2 Corinthians 10.4 For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but the divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. 
We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we're ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Paul says we're in a battle. We're fighting a fight. But it's not of this world. Our battle is not of the flesh. It's a spiritual battle. And we're destroying spiritual fortresses. We're bringing spiritual thoughts into captivity. And we're punishing disobedience as we become obedient. Paul described this battle in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. He says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. We're in a battle. We're fighting against spiritual forces. We've got to keep that in mind. I'll tell you, one of the greatest passages that describes... This battle can be found in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9. It's a very interesting passage. It's almost just a side comment in what's being said. Daniel chapter 10, I'm sorry. Beginning at verse 10. Keep in mind, Daniel in captivity has been praying and mourning and fasting for three weeks. And finally, at the end of three weeks, in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 10, the Scripture says, Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, verse 12, Do not be afraid, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Now, verse 13 is the key. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, excuse me, one of the chief princes came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Then drop down to verse 20. Then he said, Do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to the fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I'll tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. Now, we're not going to get into all the details of this passage. That would be a series of sermons in and of itself. But suffice it to say, what this angel is demonstrating to Daniel is that there's a battle going on behind the scenes. Daniel, there are things taking place that you don't see. I've been withstanding the prince of Persia. He wasn't talking about a real war that was going on at the time. He wasn't talking about an earthly war that was taking place. He was talking about something that was going on behind the scenes. And Daniel's actions and Daniel's work were a part of that. It was affecting that battle. That's going on even still today. And the things that we do, just as the disciples in their work were defeating Satan, that's the exact same thing that we're supposed to be doing today. Doing the work of God. Not only accomplishing things here in this physical realm, but casting Satan from heaven like lightning because we're defeating him and conquering him. We are at war. We may not see 
the advances of infantry and tanks. But brethren, we do see the advance of hedonism and humanism and individualism in our society. We may not see burned out, bombed out buildings, but we see broken and devastated homes. We may not see prisoners of war tortured in camps, but we find seekers held captive in cults and in false teaching churches. We may not see people crippled and paralyzed and wounded in hospital beds. But we see people beaten, burdened, and broken like sheep without a shepherd, wearied and scattered. And they need a shepherd. We are at war. But faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Can you say that? Faith is the victory. Say it with me again. Faith is the victory. That's our battle cry. We're at war. Faith is our victory. That's the only way we're going to win. But what is that faith? What is this faith that we're supposed to have? How would we define it? How would we describe this faith that will bring victory? I think one of the best ways I've ever heard it described is breaking faith down into three different kinds of faith. Or we might say three different levels of faith. Conviction, trust, and surrender. When we talk about this first level of faith, conviction, we're talking about a very surface level. We're talking about a mental level of faith. An intellectual agreement to a set of statements and a set of facts. As we describe this faith the way we might describe it today, we would probably describe this as a faith of the head. A head faith, we might say. As it describes what we think and what we believe, we become convicted of facts. For instance, look in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John describes this kind of faith when he points out in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. He said, I've given you these facts. Here are events that occurred, and I've done it for a reason. I want to produce conviction in your mind that Jesus is the Christ. I want to bring you to the point to agree with this statement. Jesus is Christ. He is the Son of the living God. We've got to have this conviction. That's where faith begins. Agreement with what God has said. But if it stops there, that faith is not our victory. That faith is not the completed perfect faith. In fact, we can look in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2 and verse 19, we find what James has to say regarding some who were convicted. James 2.19, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. They had a conviction. They had a head faith an intellectual agreement to a set of facts about God and His existence and His power. But James points out, our faith has got to be stronger than that. If we're going to have the faith that is the victorious faith, it's got to go beyond that. And so we consider a second level of faith. And this one is a faith which we might call trust. We've gone now beyond just agreeing with a set of facts to having an emotional aspect of our faith, a gut aspect of our faith. 
we might call this a heart faith. Not only do we believe that God is there, not only do we believe that God exists, but we trust that God is looking out for us. That God's way is the best way. We accept that He wants what's best for us. And so when He's revealed His Word, He's not just giving us restrictions and limitations, He's providing help for us. Help that we need and help that we want and we trust Him. His way is best. Not only do we believe it with our heads, but also with our hearts. However, though this faith takes us deeper, this is still not the victorious faith. This is not the completed, perfected faith. In fact, I think we can find an example of some who stopped at this point in John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43. In John chapter 12, verses 42 and 43, the Scripture there says, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Here were men that realized Jesus is the Messiah. In that recognition, there's a trust. They understand that what He's saying is right. This is for us. He's wanting to help us. But when it came to doing anything about it, they would refuse to confess Jesus. Because even though they recognized Him as the Messiah, the One who was coming in to provide the kingdom for them, they decided they liked something else better, the approval of men. And so they wouldn't confess Christ. And of course, there was no victory in that faith, as Jesus pointed out in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 33. If you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. No victory here. But we're growing. We're getting there. This, these are the steps. We've got to go through this. We've got to have this conviction, the agreement. We've got to have the trust. But the third level of faith that we would recognize is a level called surrender. I'm convicted enough to trust Christ. And I trust Him enough to surrender my will to Him, to do what He says. We might call this one a hand thing. We're acting. We're working with our hands. Doing what God would have us do. Giving our lives over to Him. Now that's victorious faith. Paul describes it in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I believe in Him. I'm convicted. I trust Him. And so I've given my entire life over to Him. In fact, He says, when you look at me, you're not seeing me and my will and my desires. You're seeing Christ and His will and His desires. I have completely surrendered myself over to Him. And whatever He wants. Now, brethren, that's faith. And that faith is the victory. Look at what James says in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. In James chapter 2, James writes, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, 
Go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Verse 18, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But you're willing, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Continue on, verse 23, And the Scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James is talking about this completed, perfected faith. Not stopping at the first level of disagreement and intellect and just stopping with the head, but bringing it through the heart and into the transition of bringing it into the actions in our hands and doing what God has said. Abraham surrendered himself to God's will. Can you imagine being Abraham? Waiting and waiting and waiting for a son and then God says, go kill him. But what did Abraham do? He surrendered to God's will. Because it was no longer about him and his plans and his ideas. It was about serving God. And Rahab the heart. Surrendering herself to God's will. Helping the spies and then putting out that scarlet cord when they said, this is what you got to do. This is the completed faith, the perfected faith. When we're convicted enough to trust Christ, and when we trust Him enough to surrender ourselves to His will and everything He says, then we can say, faith is the victory. Can you say that with me? Faith is the victory. There is no other victory. That's it. That's the only way we're going to win this battle. We've got to be convicted, we've got to trust, and we've got to surrender ourselves to Christ or we're going to lose this battle. But we can win. However, if we stop here, that would be a lot like taking some people and inducting them into the army and then going over to Iraq and saying, all right, guys, all y'all need to win is a battle plan and some weapons. Go get, go after it. Good luck. That would be kind of a formula for military disaster, wouldn't it? And so we've got to ask ourselves, how are we going to have the equipping and the training to win this victory? If it takes faith to have the victory, if it takes conviction and trust and surrender to God, how are we going to get that? Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 says to us, Romans 10 and verse 17, So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. I cannot stress this to you enough. There's only one way that we're going to win the battle, brethren. And that's through God's Word. There's no other way. The most important tool and weapon that we have in our battle is God's book. 
It's not attending church. It's not just relationships with Christians. It's not chicken soup for the soul or televangelists. This is the tool right here. If faith is the victory, if that's the only thing that's going to accomplish the victory in our lives, then what we learn from Romans 10:17 is that the most important thing we have in our possession is this book right here. We sang the song, Soldiers of Christ Arise. Put your armor on. The only way to put your armor on is through this book right here. Look in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 13, Paul said, Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, we recognize the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. We have no weapon if we leave this aside. But do you realize that in all those pieces of armor, of course, I know some of you in the Wednesday night class have learned this already, but do you realize that the Word of God is integral to every other piece of armor that's mentioned in this passage? In Ephesians chapter 6, And verse 14, he says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Where do we get that truth? In John 17 and verse 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. Where do we get the truth? God's Word. Not going to get it anyplace else. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14 says, Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Where are we going to get that righteousness? 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 says that Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Where are we going to get this righteousness? Where are we going to find this breastplate? From the Word of God. We're not going to find it anyplace else. He says in verse 15, "...having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace." In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul talks about the Colossians having obeyed the gospel, the Word of Christ. Where is that gospel found? Right here, in the Word. We can't prepare our feet without the Word. It goes on in Ephesians chapter 6. And in verse 16, he says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith. Now, that's what we're talking about today, isn't it? We've already read Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. Without faith, we have no shield. But without God's Word, we have no faith. And we have no victory. And then he concludes in verse 16, in addition to all, excuse me, verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Where do we get that? Second Timothy chapter three and verse fourteen, just before Jesus or just before Paul demonstrated that 
the Word trains us for righteousness. In verse 14, he told Timothy, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation. Do you see where this armor comes from? It's right here. The Word of God. It's not just our sword. It produces every bit of our armor. If we don't spend time in this book, we are unarmed. Not only swordless, but armorless. We have no shield to protect us from the fiery darts of the devil. We have no helmet. We have no breastplate. We are not girded up and ready for battle and our feet are not shod with the preparation of the Gospel until we spend time in the Word. And so if faith is our victory, we've got to be a people of the book. How much time do you spend arming yourself? Let me just assure you that becoming dressed for battle just a couple of times a week through a sermon or through a Bible class is not going to protect you. We need to be arming ourselves every day through the Word of God. Dressing up for battle every day. Let me ask you a question. A couple of questions. Have you ever felt like you were just all alone, unprotected, and vulnerable to the influences of the world? Have you ever felt like things just weren't going your way and God wasn't with you and you weren't getting your needs fulfilled? If you've ever had these feelings, if you have them right now, don't look to the church for the answers. Don't look to the preacher for the answers. Don't look to the elders or the Bible class teachers. Look right here. How much time are you spending in this book because this is where we have the armor that protects us. This is where we develop the faith, which is our victory. Are you armed and ready for battle? First John chapter 5 and verse 4. It's our battle cry. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Faith is the victory. Can you say that with me? Faith is the victory. And you've got to say it like you mean it. Don't say it like, man, this Edwin is a real weirdo making us say something with it. Say it like you mean it. Faith is the victory. This is our battle cry. Striking fear in the heart of our enemy. He doesn't want us to have faith. But it is our victory. Would you pull out your songbook, please?